0: There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go?
1: From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine.
2: Episode 7 of the Shine On Podcast, I'm Evan Shine. As always, David Yaz, the executive and legendary producer of the Shine On Podcast, is with us, the magician, behind the
1: scenes. (laughs) Uh, David, how are you? Yeah, I always thought I had a little David Copperfield in me, or maybe Doug Henning, or yeah, I'm showing my age. I should have gone with uh, more modern magicians. Chris (laughs) Chris Angel, David Blaine, I don't know. You're in New York.
2: You make me sound good, so I'll call you the magician.
1: okay. Very good. Great to be here,
2: We have a a really great show today, a tremendous guest, and we tackle a really important topic on today's episode of the Shine On podcast. And the topic of domestic violence, and specifically, non-physical forms of DV, financial control, emotional abuse, coercive control, and psychological manipulation. And this is a topic that, as a family law attorney and a litigator in Supreme and Family Courts, I encounter in my practice. And the idea for a podcast on this topic came from an important New York Times article titled, What Defines Domestic Abuse? Survivors Say It's More Than Assault. And the article was written by Milena Ryzik and Katie Benner and it was published on January 22nd, 2021. And first, I highly recommend reading the article. It brings absolutely tremendous focus to many incredibly important issues that we are going to get into on this episode on the Shine podcast and with our featured guest. A few years ago, I was involved in a case that was ultimately tried over several days. And it was a case involving both physical and non-physical domestic violence. It was a high conflict divorce, high conflict custody case. And during the case, one spouse hired individuals to impersonate social workers from a governmental agency to gain access to the other spouse's residence, posing and dressing up with badges, identification, to gain access and to take pictures of the spouse's home and personal belongings. And as as you can imagine, everyone was deeply disturbed by this type of behavior. And the spouse and victim was emotionally distraught when all of this came to light. The judge on the case was also troubled and, and really concerned and bothered by These actions and the deceit and the deception of the spouse and, and really just horrific judgment. And in this case, there was a forensic evaluation and the evaluator was appointed by the court. And in the final report, the evaluator found and referenced the behavior by the spouse was so disturbing and concerning that it constituted domestic violence, specifically coercive control and manipulation. And it's worth mentioning that as of May of 2020, domestic violence is a factor to be considered in the equitable distribution statute when it comes to dividing assets in New York State. And as we have talked about before on the Shine On podcast, New York is not an equal state and assets are divided equitably, which is not necessarily equal. Equitably meaning what is fair in a particular case based on circumstance. And in the case I just mentioned, the court was so troubled by the type of behavior that took place, the court awarded the husband zero from the division of a bank account based on the behavior outlined in the psychological evaluation and testified by both the evaluator and the parties at trial. Coming up on the other side of the docket is our featured guest, and this week on episode seven of the Shine On podcast is expert psychologist Dr. Chitra Raghavan, who is quoted in the incredibly important aforementioned New York Times article. We are going to talk with Dr. Ragavin about the article and she is going to explain and help us understand coercive control, power imbalance, and dynamics that exist in relationships and marriages. We are also going to discuss the warning signs that extend far behind the physical trauma. This is an interview that you will not want
1: to miss. All right, Counselor, are you ready for the docket, my friend? Let's do it. All right. And now, let's see what's on the docket. All right, Evan. First story comes to us that uh, you sleuthed down the story yourself from the New York Times recently. The headline, Scenes from a Marriage Patinkin Style. That's right. One of my favorites, Mandy Patinkin and his wife, Catherine Grody's charming, irreverent pandemic era posts led to unlikely social media stardom. Well, what happened here? Let me read for you a little bit of the New York Times story written by Sarah Lyall. Mandy Patinkin and Catherine Grody have been together since their first date nearly 43 years ago. They ended up getting married two years after that in 1980. But like many long-term couples, their partnership has thrived in part because they are away from each other so much. However, this past March, they left Manhattan for their cabin in upstate New York and embarked, like so many of us, on something radically different. Months of uninterrupted time together. The result is a matter of public record because these posts are all over social media, courtesy of their son, Gideon, who started recording them for fun. And then realized there was a vast demand for Patinkin-related content. So... Your thoughts on this one, Evan?
2: Dave, how great is this? Yeah. Andy Patinkin and Catherine Grody making memories, spending time with family, and making us laugh during the pandemic with their social media posts and videos. And look, who does need this type of laughter and this type of fun at a time like this? But before I get into some of the other takeaways from the article, can I get another season of Homeland? Yeah. <laughs> you know, re- re- really. You know, I yeah. could have used a season or two during the pandemic. Give me a little more solid carry. Can I get another Homeland season? I
1: happened to go to college with a woman named Meredith Steim. Steam Steim? I think Steim. Anyway, she was uh, one of the head writers for Homeland. And I saw her at a reunion. And I said, God, she barely remembered me from school. But she, <laughs> I said, I love this show so much and uh, at the t- this was before everything was streaming i said i got seasons one and two i can't seem to even find how to watch season three she's and she said don't bother watch season three it's not that good go on to season four anyway but she modeled the the character of carrie after her sister who happens to be why am i forgetting the name of the bipolar sure. right yeah as carrie is on the show but you're right he's great in, he's great in everything but he was particularly great as the the wise counselor to carrie throughout much of that show
2: Oh, he's the show's fantastic. I, I I agree about skipping season three. The show gets better <laughs> as you go forward. Right. And again, give me another season of Homeland. And Dave, look, as we've talked about before on the Shana podcast, whether divorce rates are increasing or if they will increase going forward and when, the, when there's a change and return to normalcy, look, we'll continue to have the conversation. But this article brings up something else that I think is incredibly important for Patinkin and Grody, and really for so many other couples, the pandemic and the quarantine period. And look, we're approaching one year. Whether you have stayed at home, or you have moved to a different residence, different state, or you saw seclusion at a cabin in upstate New York, like Patinkin and Grody, has it strengthened your relationship? Has it strengthened your marriage? Were you and your spouse brought closer together? Has the pandemic made your relationship with your kids stronger than ever before? And look, many relationships have ended and others are more strained because of the stress of the pandemic. But for some couples and families, the answer on whether relationships are stronger, look, it's an unequivocally unequivocally yes. An older generation who didn't know how to use Zoom or iPhone or FaceTime or Facebook or Instagram, people are more technologically savvy Than ever before. And people are finding ways to connect using these platforms. And for all the talk out there about what the quarantine is doing to relationships from a split and breakup standpoint, there's much less conversation about what it has actually done to improve and enhance certain relationships. But the question in the title is one that piqued my interest. And we have talked about it before on the podcast. Will the vaccine end their run? And I think it's such a brilliant question. And as, like I said, as I've, as I've talked about on the Shine Up podcast, divorce rates spike that we will see when there's a return to normalcy, or maybe as more people get the vaccine and the time that couples spent together, developing new appreciations for one another where the time spent with kids who are not doing in-person learning, home from college, or an entire, or an entire family that has lived together during the quarantine does that now change? Are people now going to feel safer, more secure to be alone? And will this end the run of marital bliss and family connection that perhaps existed during the pandemic or actually improved during the pandemic? And I think only time will tell how this plays out.
1: Yeah, it's true and it what's forced us, it's been a sad time and it's been a lonely time It's hard to deny that, especially this winter, you and I up here in the Route 95 belt. And there's not a lot to do now (laughs) because there's fewer things you can do outside. The outdoor dining is out the window if you live in the the cold regions like we do. But it has, I'll say the pandemic has brought me closer to, to certain people and people on the left coast or people that I don't get to talk to that often because we set up regular Zoom calls. And so with a little bit of creativity, and it is it is the relationship stripped bare. You're not going to Acapulco. You're not going out to a fancy steak dinner. So what have you got left? Well, when you think of some of your favorite moments in life, it, a lot of times it's not necessarily the trip to Cancun or something that costs a bunch of money. It's just hanging out, having laughs with your friends at a, a coffee shop or a dive bar or wherever, throwing a football around. And so um, I like to think that it, it, it is done as much good as bad in terms of focusing us on relationships.
2: David, I 100% agree. And I think it's gonna be interesting to see, will those types of interactions that you mentioned, is that going to continue post vaccine, post the return to normalcy? Look, when Fenway Park opens back up or Yankee Stadium Mm. opens back up and instead of connecting with someone on Zoom, are those relationships, or those interactions going to be replaced with The trip to the ballpark with the trip to the steakhouse, I think it's going to be very interesting to see as the weather gets warmer and more people are looking to spend time outside the house.
1: Right. Absolutely. Item two on the docket comes to us from The Washington Times headline reads filmmaker Ginger Gentile won't let kids be collateral damage of divorce. This is a documentary being worked on by the aforementioned filmmaker. The article reads, more than 44 million parents and children have been separated and lost from each other in family courts, according to one study. The documentary filmmaker Ginger Gentile refuses to let the plight be written off as the collateral damage of divorce. She's also determined to change the longstanding customs and laws for custody and child support that are supposed to protect children but what she says often destroys families. So this is the documentary. As far as we know, it's not out yet. It's the aim of her film called Erasing Family. And uh, she's got a hashtag that trends on Twitter by the same name, hashtag Erasing Family. So you're the perfect person to ask about this, Evan, whether the laws which are supposed to protect children sometimes work in the opposite way and sadly separate the kids from those they love.
2: Ginger Gentile, good for you. Love the mission. I love the message about kids not being collateral damage. And look, unfortunately, it happens. You are onto something. Your mission, your campaign to protect children, as the article notes, started in Argentina in 2014. And look, to get more joint custody arrangements and really mandates pursuant to statute, it's not an easy task. And the article talks about that. But I want to bring up something because we talked about it recently on a past episode with the divorce doctor, Elizabeth Cohen. We talked about divorce and the impact from the child's perspective. And this is, I think, at the heart of your mission and the heart of the article. And as Dr. Cohen said, look, the worst thing you could do as a parent is talk smack about the other parent to your child. And she's right. And I think when you hear something like that, you read this article, you hear about the mission that she's on to change the narrative, to change the custodial Mandates to pass legislation. I think it's great, and the article references states that have already enacted mandates in joint custody relationships. That where there's a pr- presumption that the arrangement is going to be joint custody, and we're in the process of planning an episode of the Shine Up podcast that focuses on parenting and looking at divorce from the child's perspective. So, Dave, we're going to tackle this topic in much more detail as we go forward.
1: I look forward to it, an important one, and one that sadly every divorced couple has to face in one way or another. And I've talked about my personal situation before, having two kids, I've been divorced about six years, and I'd like to think that ours is better than most, but it's never perfect. It's just hard, it's a sad thing. And it's and so I look forward to, to what I learn in a future episode.
2: And Dave, I wanna ask you, because you mentioned it, I would think that it takes time and we've talked about it before on past episodes, there's a healing process. Things take time, both the relationship from with an ex and also as you co-parent.
1: For sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think it's important to set some rules straight away. And I remember a, a friend of mine who had been through the same thing gave me the advice to just more, make sure you get just as much face time as you can with, their ki- with the kids so that they recognize that there's going to be some kind of stability going forward. And and because in the beginning, there's a lot of hurt feelings. And so it's not that easy. It, there's, as they say, there's the mourning of the loss of the marriage. And but, you know, over time, we you hope that both parents recognize that the kids interests are at the utmost the utmost importance and fight with your ex-spouse all you want. Fight with them out of earshot of your kids if you need to. That's what we've tried to do and but but it's delicate. It's delicate.
2: And some couples figure it out day one after their yeah. divorce and for some people it takes a little bit more time. Our feature guest this week on the Shine Up podcast is Dr. Chitra Raghavan. Dr. Raghavan is a psychologist in New York City specializing in domestic violence, sex trafficking, sexual harassment, and other abusive interactions and the traumatic outcomes these situations give rise to. Dr. Ragvin is a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She is the director of the Forensic Mental Health Counseling Program and the coordinator for the Victimology Studies in Forensic Psychology. She conducts research on coercive control in intimate partner abuse, sexual assault, and sex trafficking. Her work has created case law in the state of New York. She has testified as an expert witness in high profile criminal cases and also. In Manhattan Family Court. She is a professor and she has co- conducted numerous psychological evaluations. She is an author and she has appeared on media outlets such as MSNBC. Dr. Raghavan is nice enough to join us. I appreciate the time. How are you?
0: Very well. My pleasure. Thank you, Evan.
2: Dr. Raghavan, you were recently quoted in the New York Times article What Defines Domestic Abuse? Survivors say it's much more than assault. The article was written by Milena Ryzik and Katie Benner, and it was published on January 22nd, 2021. And I want to start by asking you, what is coercive control?
0: So coercive control is a term we use to describe a power dynamic that undergirds um, domestic violence. And it's a very complex paradigm and i think one way to understand this is that it comprises overt tactics the so things that you could see and you know notice visibly like screaming or physical abuse but also makes it so powerful are the smaller invisible tactics and acts that pervade and invade the person's life um so the the, the goal of coercive control is to undermine the target authority to strip them of decision making skills to make them feel dependent and helpless and and this is done through the sort of constant um, use of different tactics that are interlocked and loop back and affect each other dr Rock, i want
2: to ask you about one of those non-physical forms of domestic violence that you mentioned and financial abuse and financial control and I see this in my line of work play out in divorce cases. High net worth matters where one partner or spouse uses substantial wealth and power to exercise control on another person. And it can be in different ways, whether it's requiring someone to hand over money, drastically limiting the amount someone can spend, or condition, you know, someone receiving money based on, you know, certain things such as performing household tasks. In the case of financial abuse and this power dynamic, what are the warning signs?
0: Okay. So um, the warning signs start quite early. They start with how the couple manages money. And often, I think, particularly when there's trust or, you know, maybe at the early stages of the relationship, when there's excitement, or even if the money is primarily one other person. So frequently, not always, it's the man with more money and the woman has some but lesser. Um, and and so the tendency is to say, well, it's your money. So, you know, it's ours, but you manage it and, and not really getting curious or engaged or even feeling like it's their business. I think that's the first you know, that's the first step where it could be dangerous. And so many women do it, and it's not dangerous. But so what are some things around this that are dangerous? For example, um, asking about the money and not knowing, not knowing all the sources in in at least a high level, You know, particularly with very wealthy men, you may not know all the different sources, but not knowing them, not knowing about the bank accounts or not knowing about the primary bank accounts, not knowing about important stocks not knowing about you know not not knowing um exactly how much your partner makes and finding that sort of adorable because he's so rich i don't know how much he makes wow and turning that into sort of self you know um turning that into a positive but these are actually warning signs um particularly because he sometimes she probably knows exactly how much you make, exactly how much you don't make, where you need money. And that immediately is a power imbalance. If one partner knows all about finances and what you need, but you don't actually know about his finances, it's, it's a power imbalance.
2: And Dr. Raghu, when you bring up such a, such a great point, that you mentioned the early stages of a relationship. What advice would you give to someone who finds herself or himself In that dynamic, in that power imbalance at an early stage in the relationship?
0: So, money is a tricky thing to discuss with a partner till you're a little bit more invested or committed in the relationship. And that's part of the difficulty. Yet, at the same time, you know, if you start to feel like the person's not being entirely honest with you, I think you need to ask. Now, and so I would suggest that men and women start to be really upfront. And something that we're all squeamish about, particularly when there's a lot of money, are prenuptials, we shouldn't be squeamish about it. Um you know, because that really just puts the, the amount of money out there and you can talk about it. Honestly, I think it's reasonable that if you make a lot of money, you want to protect it. I think it's equally reasonable that if you're going to enter a relationship that you know how much money there is and what it means in terms of your power, your decision-making, your entering into the relationship and you, and ultimately your, your dignity. So have a frank talk at the point where you think this might be someone that you may be committing to um and what it means you know what it means for both of you that one partner has more money than the other it's very, very difficult we all cringe but i think it needs to be done and so you know if you have an allowance and if you are supposed to strictly use that allowance um if you have a clothing allowance for example but You can only use it on brands that he likes or only use it on things that put you on display for him in a certain way that fits a certain identity. These are not acts of generosity. He may give you $2,000 a month for a clothing allowance. It's more than some people's salary, but if you can only spend it in a certain way, it's not an act of generosity. It's an act of control and manipulation. And so it's not just if it's their money, but do you have to count for it? how do you get to spend it and if he expects obedience submission or gratitude in a way that starts to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable or it you know it starts to feel transactional in a repeated continuous demeaning way
2: doctor you bring up two great points and i want to touch on both you bring up the importance of having a frank and honest conversation about money and if possible to do it prior to marriage. As a divorce attorney, I work with clients to enter prenuptial agreements, to have that conversation, discuss money, discuss expectations, to discuss assets. And I think it's incredibly important, but on the opposite side, and you mentioned this as well, if you don't have that conversation and if you don't see the warning signs early in a relationship, early in a marriage, what happens down the road years later?
0: Well, so years later, you you might wake up and find that you have very little power. And part of that is the way we lose power is not that you step into something and overnight it's gone. It's every day these different manipulative tactics. So it could be, for example, um, isolating you from your family and friends or saying that I am your best friend. And sometimes it's actually true. Sometimes our lovers are our best friends. So I'm not, you know, I'm not dissing any of the fortunate people who could say my best friend is my husband or wife or my lover. Um, but if it's the insistence is that you need only me. And so you can wake up one day and find that you rely on your partner for money. You rely on your partner for companionship. You rely on your partner for advice. And if you ask anyone else for an opinion, he doesn't like it. And and that's when you know, and how does this tie into money? It ties into money because you're not actually understanding how other people manage money. You're not actually understanding how other people have freedom in how they manage money or access to their partner's money or des- or can make decisions without asking. So if you, down the road, if you find that you don't actually understand how much money there is and how there is to manage it, um, you know, it's, it's time to ask for, it's time to confront Um, And negotiate. And sometimes negotiation works. Um, And by negotiating, I mean saying, I know this feels peculiar after 15 years, but, you know, I'd like to have a little bit more say. I'd like to understand better why we get this money. And I'd like to have a little bit more say in it. Now, if the relationship is abusive, obviously this is not realistic. Um, It's even counterproductive. Um, I think it's time to ask a lawyer for help.
2: And doctor, it's, I want to piggyback off that answer. And, you know, if you find yourself in a relationship or marriage that's abusive and really involves, whether it's coercive control or financial control or psychological manipulation, and the New York Times article talks about while non-physical forms of domestic violence are destructive, unfortunately, they're not often treated by law enforcement or the courts the same way as physical abuse. In your experience, is this true and why?
0: Unfortunately, it is very, very true. Um, I'm on probably a a dozen cases right now that had extreme physical violence, but what was really terrifying for um, mostly the women, occasionally the men, was all the things that happened in between. And so, you know, what sorts of things happen in between? I think one way to think about it is, abusive relationships are bracketed by violence or threats and by bracketed I mean you know the abuser makes it really clear that he's capable of being threatening intimidating nasty physically abusive and then something we don't talk about much but happens all the time sexually punitive sexually coercive or just sometimes outright sexually assaultive and these bracket the relationship and say here are the poles of power and then in between these poles of power Um, abusers can isolate you. They can manipulate and gaslight you where there's a lot of emotional deceit, where for example, you are, um, where you are punished if you don't do something that he wants. Something that he wants might be, I want you to wear a particular kind of dress. You may not like the color, you may not like the cut, but you know, if you don't, he's gonna be cold and that's a punishment. But if you do, he's gonna smile and that's a reward. That is manipulative especially if it happens in the context of other power imbalances. There's also humiliation, so where you're told you're not smart enough you're not pretty enough or not clever enough or not good enough or often very harmful that you're not a good mother. This is deeply devastating to many women. And these things, the the micro-regulation telling you daily how to do your work, telling you that you like the coffee at a certain temperature, you have to wake up early, get the shirts ironed or iron them, Um, being manipulative, gaslighting, and humiliation is the glue of abuse. It's not just the poles of occasional threats, occasional um, actual physical abuse, and of course the underlying sexual imbalance. So the courts, two things happen in court. One is they don't identify all of these smaller repetitious tactics that rob um, people of their power. Two... Tragically, many of these things are not criminal. It is not criminal to humiliate and degrade and 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 deceive, emotionally deceive your spouse. It is not criminal to tell them every day, why are you so stupid? Um, it is not criminal to isolate them by saying, your friends are really dumb, why don't you just rely on me? Right, so sometimes courts cannot act. Um, sometimes courts don't recognize that they can act and these you know acts of um abuse are invisible but i I, I do want to say that in civil court courts can act and should act and how can they act in a number of different ways um and one is one is to recognize the incredible emotional damage these things do if you know at the end of 10 15 20 years you feel you're worthless. You feel you cannot be loved. You feel you're sexually incompetent or sexually crippled. You feel that you um, are not a good mother. This is a complete destruction of your identity and courts can act on that in terms of damages. Um, I would like to see more of this happening so that the, the the surviving partner, the woman or the man who's been abused can pull themselves together, start over and get a second spring, right? And so,
2: and Dr. Raghavini, you mentioned, you know, so many examples of what this non-physical domestic violence looks like. You, you know, go through different incidents and, you know, really in relationships and marriages. And you mentioned the court system and how the non-physical forms of abuse are viewed. And as a family law attorney who litigates in family court and Supreme Court, whether it involves divorce, child custody, or orders of protection, there's a concern that clients have that if they don't have bruises or if they did not receive medical treatment or call the police for help, then it didn't happen, you know, from the court perspective or the police's, you know, standpoint, or it doesn't rise to the level of a family offense as defined in the Family Court Act, harassment, menacing, stalking, or other acts that are family offenses under the Family Court Act statute. And it doesn't justify the need for an order of protection but it does a lot of times because there is a real concern based on what's happening in the relationship and although just like you mentioned some of these acts don't rise to the level of a crime it's an unhealthy relationship it's an abusive relationship so with that as a backdrop and I want to ask you what advice would you give to an attorney a family law attorney when presenting a case to a judge And the attorney has a client who has experienced a pattern of coercive control and has been subject to many of the examples and incidents that you mentioned.
0: This is a really important question. So I would do three to four things. First, I would, in a really simple narrative way, explain what coercive control is, explain that it's the overall power dynamic that undergirds this particular relationship and then highlight some of the more important tactics that have been used in this relationship. And a a key thing to remember is often, you know, and to try to explain to the judge what is creating the fear, what chain of events is creating the fear. Now, a, a key thing to remember is that women often identify things or men that really hurts them, meaning they felt devastated when he said to her, Um, you're a terrible mother, or you waste all my money, you know, by going for therapy. You know, you should just fix yourself. That is often not important to the court. What is important to the court are things that you see as important. So sometimes what you present may not actually represent what the client identifies as personally hurting, but in fact is what is contributing to the deeper fear. So there has to be a shift of perspective from, not this really hurts me, but what is actually making you frightened. So you have to, you know, the lawyer has to spend a little time maybe figuring out the essence of where that fear is coming from. And that's the first complicated part and you have to do that in, you know, probably five minutes. The second complicated part is maybe a little less complicated. It's actually the norm not to call the police. Um, It is the norm for all women. It is particularly true of middle class women. um, Because they are ashamed, they are anxious, and often the abuser uses the shame and the embarrassment, particularly if he's saying it's her fault. So highlighting that it is the norm for professional women to not call the police, because in fact, it is true that if if their colleagues got to know that they would blame her. It is in fact, her fears that she will be seen as lesser are in fact true, that that is what all the data show. Her colleagues will blame her. Her bosses will find her incompetent. So she's in a catch-22 situation, and that is why she didn't call the police, and that is why she tried to handle it herself. But why is she asking for an order now? And that's the third important part to, to emphasize, because she has come to the realistic conclusion that she cannot handle it. She's come to the courageous and possibly really I think, um, lowering conclusion for herself that she cannot handle it. That is why she's asking a lawyer for help. And, and then the fourth part that's important is why is it that she cannot handle it? Part of it is coming to the realization, but part of it is also that abusers, if, if their abuse is often contained, when the woman is complying, right? That is the point of abuse. That is the point of coercion. It is to trip your power so you're submissive and obedient. At some point, you know, m- m- many, many women say enough and they get outside help. So she, that's what she's doing. She's seeking outside help. The abuse is now escalated. So if she's asking for help right now, it is not because it's coming out of the blue. It's because previously she could in fact manage it and now she cannot. So there's some realistic To this.
2: And, Doctor, you mentioned four points, and I think they're really all important. And I want to ask you to expand a little more about you mentioned that that women or people who are subject to this type of behavior and power dynamics and abuse in relationships generally don't call the police, whether it's embarrassment or fear or shame. So, I want to ask you, how do we shift the conversation and educate the judges, the juries, on this norm and to really understand why someone may be afraid to take that next step. And because of that, they're now coming to you as the judge seeking that protection.
0: Um, I I think, you know, one of the first things to do is, is to make all of us aware that we are taught from a very young age. We're taught two things. One, we should keep intimacy private that once we talk about our, we should keep our relationships private, this is a family matter. It doesn't matter that it's legislated, it doesn't matter. The cultural zeitgeist, the cultural um, environment is that things that happen at home should stay at home. And the reality is that men and women who are discreet are respected. Men and women who are not discreet are seen as, you know, sharing TMI, too much information. So this, and I think the first thing is to get the courts and the jurors, particularly to relate that this is everybody's cultural reality. You, you don't casually tell your co-worker, last night my husband raped me and I don't know what to do. Oh, last night I had sex and I didn't want to and I cried through it, but I didn't I didn't fight because I don't want my kids to hear, right? Your co-workers wouldn't appreciate hearing this, and they also wouldn't know what to do with this information. So I think the first is to say we shouldn't punish women for acting appropriately based on what the cultural rules and norms are.
2: And, Doctor, you've testified as an expert in several high-profile cases. When you testify, how do you get across just that, just the message you just said to the judge? Right, and educate both the judge and the jury based on the research to understand, you know, different, you know, things that someone may be experiencing and feelings. How do you get that message across when you've testified in these high-profile cases?
0: I think the really important thing is to be able to relate to the judge and jury and the jurors um, in a way that it becomes personally relevant. And this is because we all have our own models of what a relationship should be. And the minute it's not us, we become judgmental, right? Everybody's a critic. And, and I think it's to really explain that women are behaving the way you and I would behave, or men and women are behaving the way you and I would behave. And this is not abnormal. This is not malingering. This is actually what we're taught to do. We're taught to handle our emotional problems. Um, we are taught to invest in relationships and stay in them. We are taught to be emotional gatekeepers of our relationships and we are valued for staying in them. You know, you, you'll, you'll see New York Times reporting, for example, married for 80 years, what a glorious thing. You will never see an article on divorced for 80 years, what a glorious thing. Or she was smart enough to get out at 20, now she's 85 and having fun, right? So even simple casual references to relationships are about longevity. This is what many of your clients tried to do and failed. And I think we have to convey that to the jurors. We cannot blame them for doing what all of us were taught to do. Suddenly, we cannot change the standards.
2: It's a really great point. And I want to go back to the New York Times article. And you're quoted in that article from January 2021. And you use the phrase love bombing as a classic warning sign. And you've mentioned You know, before other warning signs or things to look for in relationships and marriages at the beginning. Can you explain what love bombing means?
0: Yes, it's it's when you are completely showered with attention in every which way from every which angle. So um, texts flow nonstop, the texts are grandiose and exaggerated although you might see them as just you know sort of dreamy and charming where you're the queen you're the love of his or her life although he may have been married three times before um which is already i think in a warning sign there's a reason why someone's engaging on their fourth marriage and it's not because the other three women were useless which is probably often what he he might say or she might say um that no one has ever made him or her feel this way, that you were a beautiful, perfect. And not only is the content over the top, it is constant. But then there's also physical gestures like showing up at work. I would be very nervous if someone shows up at work. And why is that? Work and private life should be kept separate until, unless you work together, then it's complicated, or until you start to get deeper into it. If someone starts to, enter your work life and you didn't invite that person it's it's um a sign and says it romantically i was so excited i couldn't wait i had to you know i want to pick you up every day it actually means they're encroaching on your independence on your financial independence but also your work identity i would take that very seriously um picking you up every day wanting to have dinner with you multiple times a week which means you're not seeing your friends anymore, wanting to watch TV shows with you every night on Zoom, every night, which means you're not doing other things that you might be doing, like reading or watching it with other family members. So love bombing is taking up all of your time, but saying to you, I'm doing this because I am so dazzled by you.
2: And doctor, we've talked about the mindset of someone in that position. What is the mindset of someone who's engaging? in the type of behavior you just mentioned based on your observations and what you've seen in your research?
0: You know, there's two things happening at the same time and a little bit depends on the person doing it. And the first is he or she might genuinely be consumed by this explosion of emotion. That is, that is a little dangerous unless you're 16. Um, it would be quite appropriate if you're 16. 13, 14, 15, 16, even 20, your first deep love at college. Um, that's a little bit dangerous if you're 35. And why is it dangerous? Because if you feel this explosion of emotion that this person is perfect, a well-balanced individual will say, Wow, this is amazing, but I'm not gonna, I'm not actually gonna invade the other person's territory. I'm gonna feel this amazingness, but approach the other person normally normally because I don't want to scare them. But I also, this is how I feel. I don't need to suffocate the other person. So even if it's sincere, the fact that the person isn't managing the feelings, I, I think um, saying something about his or her ability to emotionally regulate. Now, the other kind of thing the person might be feeling is, I want to own you. And sometimes the two go together. I'm so completely in love with you therefore i deserve to own you or i want to own you and what is what is all of these things that the person is doing it's to it's to essentially take over all aspects of your life so it's about ownership
2: doctor we've talked about how hard these relationships can be and how tough especially when, when kids are involved and you know i think it's very easy for friends or family members or people on the outside to say you know what this relationship's abusive, it's not healthy for you, it's not healthy for your kids or your family, just leave. Why is it hard and so difficult for someone to just leave a relationship, leave a marriage? I know the New York Times article you know, mentions that the, the, the most dangerous moment for victims is when the decision is made to end a relationship. Help us understand why that's the case and why leaving a relationship is so difficult.
0: Um, Sure. So leaving a relationship is often just viewed as from the outside as pragmatic. So, you know, you have a place to go. You might have shelter, you might have a decent job, so just get up and go. And so we assume that when you're given pragmatic logistic things, you can just severe the relationship, which is really, not only is it unrealistic, I think it's cruel. You know, the person who's in a bad marriage is struggling. And then you have family members who are adding to the struggle by saying, come on, get up and go. I did. Why can't you? So, in a family members, please don't. I, I know you mean well, but it is so cruel to do that. What is happening to the person who is trying to end a relationship? Let's talk about what happens when you open up your heart and become vulnerable and enter a marriage. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm opening up these deep, important parts of myself. I am letting you in. And... I'm forming a new identity. This identity is that identity of a partnered person, the identity of someone who's married, the identity of a person has friends together, who has important moments together, whom I have now told some of my most painful secrets to. The person who's leaving has to come to terms that all of these things, one by one, have to be severed. It's the severing of identity, which is so difficult. I have to now severe the identity as a married woman or a partnered woman, I have to severe the identity of a woman who is loved, of a woman who is respected. I have to accept the identity of a woman who is exploited, right? So it's this very long, painful process of coming to terms that, that it's it's a it's death of a certain lifestyle, and there's this time when this lifestyle has died, lifestyle of identity and feelings, that's very gray and cold and painful. And you have to be ready to enter this place of gray, cold—you know, nothing but ashes—and stay there for a while before you can you can live again, right? So, we we have to be kind and patient because, and help people enter this gray, cold place. They have to be in it. They have to be alone in it.
2: Dr. Raghavan, you mentioned the relationship that clients and attorneys that they'll have, and often a client comes in my office, and she or he will pour their heart out. And you know, I listen to the story, I listen to the narrative, I listen to a client sit across from me and tell me about their entire marital history and their relationship with their partner. And many times clients will tell me that they feel comfortable there, they, they feel whether it's relief to be sitting in my office telling me this, this history and they've told other people this but the sense that I get from a lot of clients who were in relationships as you describe sitting in my office and telling this to an attorney is often the first time someone truly feels heard based on their relationship and their marriage is that true in your experience
0: that is such an important point Evan and I've noticed this in the last 20 years um, that often the first person that they feel believes them in a full way is a lawyer. I've seen this in criminal court, family court, civil cases, and in part, I think it's the client attorney privilege that makes them feel safe. In part, no one has really batted for them in this way. No one has really believed them. So I really, I feel like we cannot, we underestimate and we undervalue the importance in how the attorney validates the client, we also sometimes um, underestimate how bad attorneys, there's bad attorneys, just as this lousy psychologist, how they invalidate and silence their clients.
2: So what can we do to change that? What could we do so people who are in these types of relationships, abusive uh, partnerships, you know, power imbalances, what could we do, and what would you recommend to someone to feel heard, to have a team of professionals around her or him at a much earlier stage?
0: I think the first is to let the client talk and sort of encourage her to feel, or him to feel comfortable, to feel that this is what you do, to give a sense of mastery. She's seeking safety. Attorneys can be a really important point where they give hope and safety. And they do that by reassuring and listening and hearing. I think it might also be important at a later point when you get to know them better to say, I'm going to ask you some very hard and painful questions. I'm going to ask you these questions as if I don't believe you. I'm going to ask you questions that might make you feel like, why are you doing this to me? But it is because I need to have these answers in order to best represent you, in order to best defend you. So I'm gonna ask questions as if I were not working for you and with you. And that way she doesn't feel as, or he as hurt or as abandoned or as attacked.
2: Dr. Rockman, such an incredible point, such great advice and really practical tips for the divorce attorney, the matrimonial attorney. And I can't wait to pick up a copy of your book, which has a lot of these techniques in. You know, advice, as you mentioned before, and I can't wait to pick up a copy of your book on Amazon. Dr. Raghavan, I want to thank you for coming on The Shine On Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the show.
0: My deepest pleasure.
2: David, another great show on The Shine On Podcast, Episode 7 in the books, and such powerful and in-depth information from psychologist Dr. Raghavan. Thank you to all the listeners for listening to The Shine On Podcast. To the listeners on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Thank you for listening. David Yes, thank you as always for making the magic happen.
1: <laughs> thank you, my friend. And we remind our listeners to leave us a comment wherever you see the Shine On podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you see a Facebook post, anything like that, leave us a comment. And as you've heard in recent episodes, Evan may give you a shout out on the show.
2: That's right. And you can follow me on LinkedIn, at EvanShine, Instagram, at Evan underscore Shine, and Twitter, at Evan Shine. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon.